Right after that meeting, I emailed the lead of our outreach group, and I asked her, I had an idea. I was wondering if it was okay if we could translate this press release into an indigenous language or into Blackfoot. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm your host, Marion Kilgore. Today on the show, we're discussing how Siksika became one of the official translation languages for press releases from the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, or LIGO. The area of the world that is now known as Canada has an abundance of distinct indigenous languages. According to the 2016 census, over 70 are still spoken. But you'd certainly never know it from what I learned in school, or what I see in most of my day-to-day life. The British government, and then the Canadian government, spent generations trying to prevent children from learning these languages. One of the languages spoken in the prairies is Siksika. You'll also hear it called Blackfoot throughout this episode, which is the English translation. Later on, I'll talk to Corey Gray, an operator with LIGO. But first, I'm talking to Sharon Yellowfly, the Siksika translator for the LIGO press releases. She's originally from Alberta, Canada, and is a member of the Siksika Nation, formerly the Blackfoot Indian Reserve. She has a Bachelor of Arts in Anthropology and a background in Linguistics. Despite early education in the Canadian residential school system, she is fluent in the Siksika language and has been working on a dictionary for it. So thank you so much for speaking to me today. My pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess let's just start sort of at the beginning of this story. How did you get Mm -hmm. involved in translating press releases for LIGO? It was a phone call from my son, Corey, who works at the LIGO site in uh, Hanford, Washington. And he was curious whether I would be interested in doing a uh, press release for something that was coming out that they were going to be announcing in two weeks. And... um, I was, uh, I think there was a stunned silence (laughs) because I was thinking, okay, this is physics, Blackfoot and physics, huh? (laughs) I knew there would be issues because this is physics where they have a lot of terminology and theories that um, we do not have words for in Blackfoot. And that was the trepidation that came in, but... In the end, I said, sure, why not? <laughs> and that's that's where we started. Um, so when when you got the phone call, uh, mm-hmm. the, the press release announcing that LIGO had, you know, uh, detected gravitational waves hadn't reached the public yet. So you were right, right on the leading edge of getting to uh, getting to see the press release. Did you have much of an idea of what the science was going on in the, in the background of that or were you learning it for the first time while working on the translation I uh had heard and read about black holes but didn't really understand I just knew that they were these scary things out there you know kind of like Pac-Man that were just eating things and when you get when they would get sucked into these black holes, that that was the end. And it was just, uh, for me, as I said, very scary. And I needed some more information. Um, and that's where Corey would come in and uh, explain it. He would flesh it out for me. But that was basically my knowledge at the time. And uh, I had two weeks to do the translation. Um, he gave me a, uh, not gay, he emailed me a copy of that press release. And for me, it was just reading through the whole, I think it was five or six pages. And this is what I had to translate. And I came across words and phrases that there were no words in Blackfoot. So, I would have to get clarification from Corey, and that's how we started. Um, I also tapped into people back home, like my aunts, Catherine and uh, Lavina, and 
If I was having problems with a concept once Corey um, explained it to me, I would have to explain it to them, and then we would start working back and forth about uh, the word or the phrase, and then eventually come up with 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 something that uh, hopefully hit hit the mark in Blackfoot. Yeah. So you had. Uh, you know, uh, some some words you already had like like sky right. and and stars, mm-hmm. um, right? But some of the terms like gravitational waves, which is sort of what the observatories built to detect, uh, right? Was there what sort of background for those sorts of science terms was there already in Blackfoot, or were you sort of starting from scratch? Starting from scratch. Um, as you just mentioned, there were words that were, you know, straightforward, uh, direct translations. Um, there were, uh, I, eventually I came up with four categories. The first were the traditional ones, you know, the words for, for sky, sun, moon, stars. We already had those. So those were not an, uh, an issue. There was no problem there. And then there were the direct uh, straightforward translations like black holes, uh, binary black holes, and those, um, as I said, were very straightforward. Like the word for black is uh, fixinazi, and for holes, it uh, oxka. And so it's just combining those two words, and you come up with black holes. And there was a... Uh, a, a more um, uh, a, a word that might make more sense is a word like eggplant in Blackfoot territory. We did not have eggplant, you know, the the vegetable. Mm-hmm. And I came up with, or not, I came up with. My mother did. Uh, I had to explain to her what an eggplant was, and she just used the word for egg and plant, and that was it. Um, so that's that cat- category, the direct and straightforward. And then there were the uh, conceptual ones, meaning those are ones that Corey had to explain to me. And then uh, coming up with a, a phrase that hopefully um, explains what th- that that theory was, like gravitational waves. Um, which are gravitational waves, but in Blackfoot it translate uh, it translates as stick together waves. And another example would be the word for a scientist, and this was a word that was coined by my father, and the word he came up with was which translates as all-encompassing smart people. <laughs> so that's that category. And that one was also uh, interesting and, and fun, but did entail having to call people back home. You know, what would be the word for this concept and then explaining it? Right. So you and then had- the literary license was the final category. Um, this is where I... I would basically have to come up with a word because if you translated a particular word, it might take four or five pages trying to explain it, like uh, Einstein's general theory of relativity. And that one was very simple and straightforward. I came up with beautiful plantings or pisatin siman. So, so in some cases, you had to sort of just sit down and dig in and understand what the jargon was trying to convey and then exactly and then figure out sort of a a way that i well i assume like the original scientific jargon somebody would probably need to have the the term that you translated it to explain to them at least once that like okay this is this is what we're calling gravitational waves now Right, exactly, exactly. The proviso, though, um, depending on who, 
I guess the example would be if you went down to Cardston or uh, Brockett, that's the blood and the pagan reserves, and were asking somebody there, what would be your word for gravitational waves or, uh, you know, interferometer, they might come up with different words depending on their understanding of what those words mean or what they do. Yeah, so Blackfoot, Siksika, mm-hmm. is, it's not as widely spoken as it would have been before the Canadian government did what they could to mm-hmm. get rid of it. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have an idea about how many people fluently speak um, Siksika these days? I can't speak for the blood and the pagan in Alberta or and also the Blackfeet in Montana, but I know on our reserve you have, um, and, and this is just a ballpark figure, maybe a few thousand who still speak the language fluently, and then you have a generation that understands it but may not speak it fluently, maybe, you know, words here and there. But there are uh, movements in place. There are people on the reserve who are trying to reintroduce the language to the the new generation, the younger generation. And kudos to them. They are doing a very nice job because a lot of the, the kids now are learning Blackfoot and they are speaking it uh, because of these efforts by some of these people, uh, notably uh, Vivian Aingman and um, I'm trying to remember some of the others. But anyway, she is in charge of that. So how does how are they handling um, terminology that would have been developed pretty recently? I mean, you know, cell phones as a as a sort of common term is not right. that old even in English, and now you're taking a language that has a fairly small speaker pool and trying to teach it um, to people who are going to if they're going to speak it fluently, probably going to want to use those sorts of technological type terminology. Is, right. is that is that the sort of thing that's getting figured out on the fly? And and when you're talking to somebody either from another area who's had, who's had different conversations, you're teaching each other these words that you've come up with for sort of modern devices? Right. Right. I, because language, and I'm talking about languages in general, are so fluid that um, words, okay, let's take a telephone. I think uh, people on the reserve would use the same word for a telephone. Um, and it might also be used on the blood or the pagan reserve. But it's a little things like, say, bathroom slippers, uh, you know, a woman's bathroom, uh, bathroom slipper that might be pronounced differently, say, uh, between my reserve and the, uh, say, like blood. Uh, I know this for a fact because my cousin, um, Geraldine, is married to someone on the blood and she, we were discussing this, and she was telling me, well, this is how we say it on, on the reserve. And it was different. But it has the same meaning. You know what, the, what they are referring to. So when you were writing, uh, or when you were writing the translation for the, for the press releases, is there, is there a standardized writing system that you were using? Or are there multiple writing systems for six Okay. Okay. Um, there is a writing system on the reserve uh, right now that are uh, being used by, I think it's the Siksika language. I forget the exact title of the program on the reserve, and I think that they may have worked with linguists. Um, I, uh, that I'm not sure. I'm just speculating. My system, you have to understand, I, uh, you don't understand, but I will explain. I started working on a dictionary when I was 23. And at 23, I just noticed that there were uh, 
younger people who preferred speaking English or were using English, and there was a lot of code switching. Mm -hmm. In other words, you'd have English, 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 Blackfoot, 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 English, English, you know, that kind of code switching. And I, at the time, I just started writing words down, words that I knew, that I remembered, and just started writing things down on paper. And I also uh, would interview my m mother and father, uh, interview them, um, where they would tell me stories. And if there were words that I needed assistance with, I would ask them, how would you pronounce that? It, it went that way until I went to university and um, took anthropology. And in anthropology, that was my major. Um, there were two foreign languages that I took, which were uh, Nahuatl and Japanese. Mm -hmm. And the language Nahuatl is uh, spoken by, I think, one and a half million people in Mexico. And it was being taught by uh, the expert in that field, Franny Burdan. And from her, I learned the word agglutinative, which is what um, a lot of native languages are. In other words, you have phonemes, you have sounds that are um, interchangeable, that are used for different uh, words. And reinforcing that was uh, Japanese, where the tr their traditional language, hiragana, worked perfectly with Blackfoot because they have a lot of the same sounds in that language in hiragana that we do in Blackfoot. Okay. Not a lot. Uh, there aren't a lot of this, some of the sounds in Japanese that we use in Blackfoot, but it uh, it was a synergy for me that I used hiragana and uh, the way I, I heard Blackfoot. And was that was uh, the road that I took to write my dictionary. And it was just writing down these different phonemes and using that in the dictionary. And that was how I started, started it. So a phoneme would be like, um, you know, an A is pronounced like the A in father. So that A sound exactly. is a phoneme. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and when you're writing English, a lot of the time, you're sort of guessing at how some of those are pronounced. So you were Right. And that's also very different because you could have long eyes and short eyes pronounced uh, by different people, but meaning the same thing within a word. Yes. Or, or the, it, the one that I run into a lot, which is, uh, I've only encountered a word in writing. And then I try uh -huh. to pronounce it, and people who know what, who figure out what I'm trying to say, think it's hilarious. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so the so the writing system that you use was was a way of trying to notate those different those different sound individual sounds. Exactly. I um, my background is in cultural anthropology, and a linguist, not so much. Um, I guess I'm a linguist in that I speak my language and English and some of these other languages, but um, not really, not officially a linguist. But the dictionary that I've written, I've written so that it makes sense uh, to me and hopefully for my four children, uh, because the work that I'm doing with this dictionary is for them that I hope to leave for them when I go. <laughs> so when you were working with uh, other people to decide on on translations for some of the more complicated jargon, um, mm -hmm. was it, were you just all sort of brainstorming, throwing around uh, different ways it could be interpreted and then settling on one that made sense? Yes, um, the difficult part sometimes in um, explaining the a concept uh, to somebody back home um, who may not 
have a, a, a high school degree and therefore may not have a background knowledge in, say, like gamma rays, um, there it would have to be uh, an explanation, okay, this is what's going on, mm-hmm. right? And then having them maybe uh, come back with, okay, maybe it's this. And then if it doesn't sound right, uh, for me anyway, then it's maybe trying to explain it in a different way until something fits, something, um, you know, the light goes off, that kind of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Are there any yeah. translations that you came up uh, with in the first press release that looking back at them now, you're like, well, knowing what I know now, having done a few more of these, I would translate this differently. Um, most definitely. <laughs> uh, with that first one, I tried calling uh, people who work with a language. I called people at the uh, museum and and couldn't get anybody. And um, that's where uh, Catherine and, and Lavina really came in handy because they were very patient with me. <laughs> and... Um, Yes, I look at that press release, and the way that the press release was translated, it didn't have the various icons, the various symbols that I've used in my dictionary to uh, uh, replicate those sounds that we have. So when I look at it, and I look at a word, Without looking at the original press release, it's sort of, no, what do, what was that word? <laughs> so it was, it's that kind of, uh, yeah. <laughs> so there's been a learning curve for it. Oh my gosh, yes. But it also, um, it also forced me into having a, um, sort of not a formula, uh, for lack of a better word, an algorithm that I needed to have things in place so that if I'm using uh, electromagnetic one time, I write that word down exactly the way I've written it so that if that word comes again, then in, in a later press release, I have that ro- uh, word already written down and that's the one I use because these words are agglutinative you could change one phoneme and it could have a different meaning. So it was very important that I write these things down as I was encountering them in the later press releases. Because I look at that first press release and boom, that thing was all over the place. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you've translated. Do you know how how many press releases have you translated so far for LIGO? I believe it is uh, five. Uh, Corey will have a better idea. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, have have other Sixika speakers read your press release and had their own opinions about how you should have translated something or how something should be pronounced? Oh, I'm I'm sure they have. Um, as I said, someone w- would probably look at the press release and say that's not that's not right, or um, if they don't hear the word, I, and I think there is a difference between hearing a word and reading it. For sure. And uh, I've really tried to have it exact so that if you read it, then it makes sense. But I imagine there are um, people who have read it that think, I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand that. <laughs> and and my... Um, my reaction to that would be, uh, call me, uh, and we can discuss this. You know, I want to learn things. Maybe you can, you know, have a have a better word or, you know, something along those lines. Because I, I, there are a lot of words that um, I don't hear today that my grandparents used, and I would love to know those words. And those words, as I said, were spoken by my grandparents. Those words are gone because they're gone. Yeah. So um, when you were younger, uh, you had to enroll in one of the Canadian residential schools. Um, Mm -hmm. 
they you seem you well, you've managed to at least uh keep your first language um mm-hmm. when when so many people didn't but do you think that's had an, an influence on your desire to make sure that this is recorded and used yes uh definitely um there are um uh apps that that are available now for blackfoot and those are wonderful um but there can always be additions to those and i think there are people who speak the language beautifully on the reserve right now it's it's for me it's wonderful when i'm able to talk to people back home and hear the language and just and of course with every language there are underlying um messages or underlying meanings that are embedded in the language and i love hearing those i love um you know being able to talk to talk the language do you think that projects like this where you're using blackfoot for a purpose that it hasn't typically been used for for a you know hard science press release um mm-hmm. is a way to help keep the language healthy and living I think so um I thought about you know translating a recipe in blackfoot you know little things like that um translating you know you could translate so many things uh into blackfoot i think it it would really um encourage people to uh to read and use those words in their everyday lives um so yes do you think that the that the work you and Corey have done um to translate these press releases has uh has has created an opening for having a lot of science conversations in Siksika? I think so. Um, the people who have attended uh, some of the presentations that Corey has done that I have spoken to um, talk about the uh, surprise they have that this is being done by someone on our reserve, from our reserve, and that it is uh, encouraging to have someone that, um, the word they use is intelligence, to be in this particular field that they think of as, as hard, and that hopefully their grandchildren or their children will be encouraging their kids to go, you know, explore, to be, you know, practice the five W's, you know, who, what, when, where, why, and asking the question how, you know, just to get the minds going, Mm -hmm. that give them that spark. Anything else that I, that I missed that you wanted to mention? Um, I don't, this may be kind of off, but I have a fantasy about having a reunion um, of people who went to, we had two boarding schools on our reserve, and uh, having a reunion of people, a get-together, and maybe talk about some of their experiences when they went to either Crowfoot or Old Sun. Um, I have relatives who went to both of, both of the uh, boarding schools, but I would love to get these people together and just talk about, um, as I said, experiences, what mm-hmm. they remember, what their memories are, that kind of thing. Yeah, so was there... I'm, I'm, ass- I'm kind of assuming that it was, but was were the residential schools, the boarding schools... Um, quite strict on trying to stamp out the local language? Yes. Uh, One of the examples I can give is that um, if you were caught speaking Blackfoot, the punishment would be that you did not uh, go home. Um, By the time I got to Crowfoot, 
we were um, there during the week and then allowed to go home on the weekends. And the the punishment, as I, as I said, if you were caught, you didn't go home that weekend. Right. Mm-hmm. Which and, is a pretty mm-hmm. good way of pressuring kids into doing what you want them to. Exactly. Exactly. It was a little more, um, I think, difficult for my grandparents, who also went to boarding school, who were there for like three or four years, mm-hmm. never going home. The uh, for those three or four years, but they still spoke the language, and uh, as I said, they used a lot of words that I did not use or had not heard. And then with my parents' generation, they were there for the whole year, and they went home in the for, uh, for the summer. Right. Again, also not being allowed to um, to speak the language. But what I found interesting is that they did not talk about some of their experiences at at Crowfoot. And I would love to have been an anthropologist at five years old to have asked them all these questions that I yeah. have now. Hopefully things are getting a bit better, at least for, for the language mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. in general. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Um. I guess I, I I always sort of when I'm when I'm talking about translating scientific stuff into mm-hmm. other languages, I always sort of circle back to this idea that if you don't have people using the language regularly in their day to day life, you know, going about mm-hmm. their normal business, right? Then you then you don't you don't get the chance to develop a lot of the words that pick mm-hmm. up on how society and just how life changes, right? Right. It becomes like right. an, like an artifact of, mm-hmm. of a pastime, which is not what you want a language to be. Right, exactly. The, the category that I've labeled uh, conceptual, which is actually coming up with uh, neologisms, um, that is interesting and it is exciting and I think uh, worth looking at as far as how other people translate uh, words, new words. Um, one of the, one of the um, interesting, I thought was interesting, in trying to um, explain math, they would talk about a black hole that is, I don't know, 30 times the mass of our sun. Trying to explain that in Blackfoot was difficult. So the um, uh, the concept that I came up with was comparing, if you took three mountains mm-hmm. and crushed them into one tablespoon, that's mass. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's fine. I think they, they understood that. <laughs> So are you, are you planning to keep translating press releases as long as Corey keeps handing them to you? As long as he does, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's, what, they're, what they will be discovering, but I think that they are still, um, because of Einstein's theory, more things I think will be coming out. I don't know what they are, but um, they have all the equipment <laughs> to find out. <laughs> Absolutely. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. Oh, well, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. You can learn more about Sharon Yellowfly and find links to information about LIGO and the Siksika translation at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Next up, I'll talk to Corey Gray with LIGO. Joining me is Corey Gray, a member of the Siksika Nation of Alberta. He received Bachelor of Science degrees in Physics and Applied Mathematics from Humboldt State University in Northern California. After graduation, he was hired by the California Institute of Technology to work for LIGO. As a member of the LIGO team, Corey's work included helping to build and now to operate the gravitational wave detector, and currently he is an operations specialist at the Washington Observatory. Corey is also proud of being able to recruit his mother, Sharon Yellowfly, to translate several detection press releases into Blackfoot. 
Thanks for speaking to me today. Hi, thank you. Thank you. Just to bring everybody up to speed before we start talking about some of the challenges of translating the press releases, I'd like to start with a bit of a basic overview of LIGO and the science behind it. Um, so what are gravitational waves? High level. <laughs> okay, I, I, I guess I'd have to go back a little over a century ago and, and just start with uh, uh, Albert Einstein and maybe even before that to, to Sir Isaac Newton. So everything related to what LIGO is looking for is related to gravity. And before Albert Einstein, gravity was thought of as a force, uh, according to, you know, for a few centuries, according to, to Newton. But then in 1915, that's when uh, the general theory of relativity um, uh, was shared with the world by Albert Einstein. And he came up with a completely different way of thinking about what gravity is. So instead of a force between two objects, uh, Einstein saw gravity as how uh, masses affect the space around them or curve the space around them. And so all objects uh, bend the space around them. I mean, but smaller objects do it a much smaller level. Uh, it's, it's only when you have these very large objects, that's when you see more warping or curving of space. So you have to talk, you have to get in the, the, the frame of planets or stars or, or even bigger things such as the neutron stars and black holes. And so the bigger, the heavier the object, the more it warps the space around it. And then taking it another uh, step further is if you take one of these masses, one of these heavy masses or objects, and then if you accelerate it or move it around in space or throw it into another object and smash them together, as you're doing that, as those objects move around in space and warping space around them, they make waves in, the, in space or in space-time. And it's these waves or these wiggles in the space that they're moving around in that uh, generate these signals or wiggles that are called gravitational waves. And if you happen to be right next to one of these violent events between two stars or two black holes crashing into each other, these signals would be huge and they'd literally tear you apart. It's only... Um, uh, luckily, these, these kind of events are very far away. And uh, uh, the negative thing for that, for us here on Earth, is that uh, by the time these signals pass through the universe and pass through matter, pass through galaxies, stars, and other, <laughs> all through space, by the time they get to Earth, they're so tiny, super tiny, uh, that even Einstein thought that we'd never be able to detect these wiggles in space-time. Um, but Fast forward a century after the general theory of relativity was released in 1915, that's when LIGO uh, recorded its first signal of gravitational waves directly detected by LIGO, LIGO's instruments. And that um, was the, a signal from two large black holes that smashed into each other. And we caught the very last fraction of a second of this uh, very long dance they had as they were whirling and swirling around each other. And right when they crashed into each other, that's when you get the biggest burst of, of energy and the biggest signal of gravitational waves. And so that's the very first signal that we recorded back in 2015. So if I'm just standing out in a field minding my own business, would I even know that one of these waves had gone through us there there's no way to to detect it or feel it with your your the senses of your body i mean if you know a little bit of the astronomy you could think yeah i'm just laying on this in this field and just looking at the sky and as you're looking at the sky you could be thinking about all these things that are happening but there's no way you could feel it I mean, in a sense, these things are, are bathing us. These, these signals from different violent events all over the universe are, are passing through the earth and, and just going on their way at the speed of light and just going right through the earth, passing through matter as they go. But they're so tiny that there's no way you would know about them. And so that's why you need these super sensitive instruments that uh, LIGO has two of, uh, one in Washington State and one in Louisiana, and uh, you need these super sensitive instruments to be able to just see the, the, the biggest of events, the most strongest ones, because uh, 
uh, they're just very small, tiny signals. So why are there two observatories? Good question. Uh, if, if you recorded an event at one of the observatories, uh, th- there would definitely be questions about, oh, uh, is, is this a real signal? Could it be real? Um, uh, and so at the very beginning, that was, the, that was why there was the idea of you need to have multiple detectors so that you could uh, confirm that you, you saw the same signal, an astronomical signal, uh, and see that it's recorded on two different detectors that are far away from each other. And because the speed of light is constant, uh, that, that's one way you weed out uh, you know, just regular noise. But if you have a, a signal that is seen on both detectors and it's seen within uh, a certain amount of time, uh, that's usually when you have a very good likelihood of recording uh, an astrophysical um, signal. So, yeah, so we just have, LIGO has two detectors, but we also work with other uh, groups around the world. There's another detector, which is in Italy. It's called Virgo. So they also, uh, they work separately from us, but we work with each other when uh, uh, with our data. So if something is recorded on both of our uh, LIGO detectors, uh, we also coordinate with Virgo to see if they saw the same signal. And that's how this is going to be progressing in the next few years. We'll, we'll have another uh, uh We'll have other groups of detectors that will also be joining us. So there will be one in Japan that's in a mine that's supposed to actually come online in the next uh, few months. And there's going to be another LIGO observatory in India, and that's going to be in another few years. And uh, so we'll all be able to confirm the events as they happen. But then the other thing with that I haven't mentioned is that as you have more detectors, it's it's like adding more senses or more sensors on the Earth. So each of each of these new detectors that come online in the United States, Italy, Japan, India, all of them also, when they record these events, they, it helps us to better locate the source or where this event happens in space. So if all of these detectors are online at the same time, they record the signal that passes right through the Earth, all of them see it and record it. We're able to we're able to better pinpoint the source location with more observatories, and the reason why that's important is because uh, when we record these events and when we have the location of certain types of events, we can relay or we could send alerts to uh, uh, regular astronomers who look at uh, electromagnetic uh, waves or light, and so if we tell them well, we saw a signal right there up in the sky, really a small area in the sky. They'll be able to pin, you know, move their instruments to that location and then see if they could see any light from the same event that we saw gravitational waves uh, from. And so, and that's, we call that multi-messenger astronomy. So that's when you have, uh, when you're able to see events with different types of uh, instruments uh, uh, coming from different types of medium. So gravitational waves is one. Uh, electromagnetic light is another. And, and with electromagnetic waves, there's visible light, infrared, radio waves, gamma rays, and so many, uh, so many other things that have been around for centuries or decades. But uh, gravitational waves are fairly new, so it's just we're going to be learning a lot more things too with with uh, uh, the, the science that we have, and then working with astronomers too. So it's it's kind of a, an interesting and exciting time to be in in this field. So, obviously, once uh, once everybody had had a chance to let it sink in and, and realize that these were actually gravitational waves that you guys had detected right after starting up the equipment again, um, yeah. how did you decide to get, try and get the first press release translated into Blackfoot? Yeah, so the <laughs> sometimes I forget the date, but I have a tattoo of it on my arm, so I'm looking at it right now. So the, <laughs> the event happened on September 14th, 2015, and we were under an embargo. So we were uh, we had we had all of us within the collaboration, 1,200 people uh, had to agree to not say anything about this the scoop of scientific scoop of the century, <laughs> arguably. So. 
uh, from September all the way to February, uh, we were under an embargo. And uh, in that time, we analyzed the data, uh, confirmed that it was real. Um, then we started the process of writing an actual paper that would go with the announcement that we were going to have. Uh, and that all took, um, you know, uh, from September to February, that's you know, five months. Uh, and it wasn't until the, I think, two weeks before we had our release date, which is in February, we're like, that's when we were starting to think about uh, how we would announce this to the world. And I'm a member of the education and public outreach group for, for LIGO. And so I was on um, uh, teleconferences or, or phone meetings, you know, almost, yeah, I think it was weekly pretty much at that point, right, leading up to our announcement in February 2016. And uh, at that point, there was the, the discussion of the press releases uh, and, ju and just how we wanted to share this with, with the world. And uh, the press release was drafted in, in English. And then the topic of uh, uh, translations came up. And, and the collaboration is, is a worldwide collaboration. So we have scientists all over the world. And so we have um, many speakers of different languages uh, all over the world. And so, yeah, all of them uh, were all excited about this, this news that we were going to share. And so a lot of people volunteered, oh, yeah, I'll translate it into Germany or I'll translate it in Japanese uh, and all these languages. And I was quiet when I was listening in on this phone conversation. But um, uh, late that, right after that meeting, I emailed the lead of our outreach group and I asked her, I had an idea. I was wondering if it was okay if we could translate this press release into an indigenous language or into Blackfoot. And I was skeptical that I would get any kind of you know positive <laughs> reply back because uh, I, I said that in order to, I don't speak, I don't speak our, my language. I don't speak Blackfoot. So I would have to um, get my mother to, to, to help with this. And so I, I was skeptical just mainly because I would, you would have to be uh, uh, sharing this, this news with my mom and it was supposed to be all t top secret. Uh, but yeah, within, you know, minutes of sending the email, I got a quick reply back and uh, Joey key. She's a, 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 a physics instructor uh, who also works with our collaboration. She was like, yes, she was totally excited and said, you should totally do that. Uh, share this, share the press release with your mom and you have uh, two weeks to, to get this done. <laughs> and so that's how it happened. And when I think about it in hindsight now, um, for me, it was just a natural thing to think about. I always grew up knowing how important language was to my mom. I didn't think too much about it. I didn't, I just thought oh, it's just natural. I should ask my mom if she wants to do this, but um, I don't know our language. And I don't know if you know the whole story of the, the history of a lot of uh, tribes and, and what happened to a lot of tribes uh, with boarding schools, but my mom was a survivor of that. And that's the reason why she didn't pass on the language to us. Um, but anyways, I grew up listening to, to uh, her speak. I mean, as, as a kid, I mean, when I was a kid, uh, she would talk on the phone with my grandma and grandpa all the, like almost weekly. So I'd always get to hear Blackfoot. It was in my ears. And, and then there's the, the usual phrases in Blackfoot that my mom would scream at all of us kids when we're not listening or if we need to hurry up and do something. I know those little short little phrases, but uh, so, yeah, I, I grew up with it. And then I, I think just, just w uh, knowing a little bit about my culture and learning about it also in college it, it just became a, an important thing. So that's why it was so natural for me to just put my hand up and say, can we translate this into Blackfoot? <laughs> and so, yeah, and that's, so that's where it all started. And then basically I was just a middleman and then I just handed it to my mom and she's the one who kind of, kind of soared and did all this work and did this, this amazing uh, thing for our tribe and for, for our culture. Yeah. So two weeks uh, doesn't sound like a lot of time to translate a scientific press release. Um, <laughs> even, even if you're translating it into something like German that probably already has a lot of the jargon figured out. Yeah. Uh, so from your end of things, helping, like supporting your mom while she was doing this translation, uh, what did the process look like? What were you uh, on on call helping her out with? Yeah, the press release is, I'm trying to recall, I think it's only about two pages. It's, I mean, that's the nature of them. They're supposed to be pretty quick and to the point and kind of explained in a way that's 
easy to understand. And so um, actually I didn't uh, get a lot. I, I thought I maybe would get a lot of consultation from my mom, but she kind of ran away with it. I mean, she would have a couple of questions for certain terms. So like interferometer, I'd have to kind of tell her what the, the machine is. Uh, that's one example. Or just recently, she was asking, what does inspiral mean? So that's when two objects are orbiting each other and, and getting closer and closer as they're, as they're spinning around each other. She didn't know what that meant. Uh, or electromagnetic. Uh, so certain words, she would um, text me. And then I would uh, text her back, uh, kind of, uh, I, I tried to make it as uh, understandable as I could. But there, I was surprised that I didn't really have to do that very often. Um, I heard that she did do a lot of uh, uh, speaking with her family. So if, if she had issues with any words, she would, uh, she told me after the fact that she talked to a lot of her family, her aunties, her brother uh, up in Siksika and up in Calgary. And so they also helped her with, uh, with, with some of the words as well. Has it helped you with your Blackfoot at all? Uh, a little bit. I mean, I just wish I had more time to learn my language. Um, I carry it with me all the time because I, I have audio recordings that my mom made on tapes of her, her for her folks. Like uh, this is back in the eighties and nineties. And so I digitize those. So those are actually on my computer. They're on my iPod or iPhone. So I can listen to those uh, anytime. And, and my mom actually started a dictionary. So I actually have that on word on my computer. It's, but it's, yeah, one thing I, I need to be better at is making time to, to, to learn our language because I, I would like to, to learn more. With that said, I think I did get some experience or some, some I forced myself to learn by uh, uh, recording my mom on YouTube uh, saying the words from the press release. So that was actually a, an exercise. I didn't even think I'd learn much from it, but having my mom on video and then uh, writing, I, I wrote the subtitles of all the Blackfoot words on the video. And so that act of like looking at the translation on the, of the press release, listening to my mom and then typing it out uh, with subtitles onto this YouTube video I made, that was actually a learning process. too. so all these words are making more sense to me, at least looking at them. But as far as speaking it, no, that's where I need to definitely do some more work. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, it's especially hard when it's not something that you learned as a child, right? Everything gets harder. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. So has the work that you and Sharon have done translating the press releases influenced your outreach work? Actually, yeah. So, <laughs> okay, yeah. So, so I, I do quite a bit of, uh, of talks and, 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 and outreach work. And, and, and I mean, all of, a lot of LIGO uh, members are more popular now just because of this huge discovery that's happened. Um, and so, so because of that, I, I've given quite a few talks over the, over the last few years. And so I'm usually booked up a few times a year all over the place. And one of the things that I, it, it's without fail that the biggest reaction I get when I give talks is when I show the video of my mother, uh, uh, speaking or, or of the YouTube, if I show the video, the YouTube video of my mom, uh, that's the one that I get the biggest reactions from audiences. And mainly it's because they're, they're, they think it's cool, but I, I, I focus on, I have three t clips that I usually show. One's just a random clip with some big words in it. And then, cause uh, the, the video is about 15 minutes. So I just show like 30 second clips. And, and then the one that really gets them is when, uh, it's at the end of the video and she, uh, and, and you could, cause I said it took us a, a couple of hours. She was, I sat her down for a couple of hours, recorded her and we had, had to do it multiple takes. And so it was very, it was the very last sentence. And as soon as she's finished, um, uh, as soon as she knows she's done, <laughs> she, she doesn't cuss, but she says, son of a biscuit <laughs> and she's laughing and then I'm laughing and that's the one that everybody loves. So it's at the end of my YouTube video. And 
Um, yeah. So, so yeah. So I think just when, and, and especially with scientific communities, um, when I talk about science communication and how I bring myself to my work, uh, when they hear about how I did this with my mom, how I was able to one work with my mom, which some people are always rave about. And I don't even think about that, but yeah, that is a very cool thing that I've heard about in hindsight from somebody else. <laughs> uh, so work with my mom. And then the whole thing about translating the scientific document into Blackfoot. So that's, those are two things that also just get, uh, I mean, just people always applause for that. Um, but they also love those clips and hearing my mom being funny too. <laughs> yeah. And the two of you have done um, some, some conference presentations and whatnot. So uh, are those, you know, a direct result of all of this work translating paper or tr press releases? Uh, it's kind of random. So the, we were, the announcement was in 2016. And so there wasn't a lot of fanfare as, as far as related to this story. It wasn't until my mom and I did a, our first talk together and it was from a grant from a, a fellow collaborator that I work with. He, he, he had a grant for, uh, outreach in native communities and he, he said he asked me if, if i was interested in, in using this grant money i was like yeah yeah of course <laughs> and so uh randomly i found out about a an indigenous language conference that was in lethbridge at the university of lethbridge and that was 2018 uh, the summer of 2018 and uh lethbridge is in blackfoot territory and so uh uh for this conference, that was the first one that me and my mom both spoke at together. So I, we both were presenting, uh, you know, in a 50 minute, uh, presentation. And that was, that was, a, that was an awesome experience because we were both in, in, uh, in a place where a lot of Blackfoot people were. And, and even on top of that, a lot of educators were there. I mean, educators from our tribe. So the, the Sixika Board of Education had a lot of people in attendance there. And after we gave our talks, they totally uh, just, uh, they, they, they surrounded us. They rushed us and they were like totally hugging my mom. I was taking pictures of all of it. And they, there was like 20 of these educators from our tribe that were just in awe because they didn't even know about this. They didn't, they had no idea about it. Uh, and they were just so proud of my mom. They were proud of the work that uh, I did. And, and uh, they were just surprised that someone from Sixica was connected to this, this project or this, 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 this huge event that, you know, that also received the Nobel prize as well for this first detection. So it's a very big event. And then to see that Blackfoot people are connected to it, uh, uh, these audience members were just very uh, excited. <laughs> and because of that, that, I think news spread a little bit from that. Um, but I don't think it was until um, this year when there was a, 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 someone contacted me from National Public Radio down here in the States, so NPR. And it's somebody that I listen to on the drive to work, you know, every couple of days. She's the scientist, science uh uh, reporter for NPR and she emailed me out of the blue and and heard about this story and she wanted to do a story about it and so I, after being in uh, uh, <laughs> in awe or I don't know just kind of in shock uh, I, I said yes so to totally we would share this and so yeah uh, I, we got to talk to Nell Greenfield Boyce from NPR and she interviewed me and then she interviewed my mom my mom also listens to NPR so she was uh, also in shock as well and yeah, it's in, in March of this year, that story uh, kind of blew up as far as, as what the work that my mom did with this translation. And so I, I still listen to that interview all the, you know, every couple of days or weeks, just because, I mean, it's the first time you can hear someone say Blackfoot or Siksika on the airwaves. So that's the first time I've heard that and actual Blackfoot word. You, you hear it on the, we heard it on the radio. It's online. You can listen to it anytime. And I still trip out on that. And then I also tear up when I just hear my mom talking about her whole story and the experience of surviving boarding schools. And then how she's able to turn that story around by, by doing this project with us, uh, with, with our, with her language or our language. And 
since the first one in 2015, um, your mom yeah. has worked on a few other press releases. Have they all been the uh, very compressed two-week timelines, or have some of them been a bit more luxurious? Uh, for the most part, they have been something on the order of two weeks or a week where she had a, the, when we've, we, when we've announced, uh, when we've had press releases over the years after that first one, we still did take our time, uh, to write them. Uh, uh and for most of the press releases that my mom's done, all of those, uh, have been related to binary black hole mergers or, uh, BBHs or, or, you know, two black holes crashing into each other. Uh, but it wasn't until August of 2017 when we made our uh, a second type of detection, a unique detection, which wasn't black holes, but neutron stars. So these were two stars which were uh, in a dance with each other, spiraling, spiraling around each other and then crashing into each other. Uh, that happened in August of 2017. And that one was also, that's my second favorite one. So the first one's my favorite. <laughs> that this this uh, binary neutron star one is my second favorite because it's a totally different type of uh, event uh, uh, or detection. And what's unique about this one is that uh, because you're not dealing with black holes, you're dealing with stars. What you get is you have the two stars crashing, gravitational waves being generated, and then also uh, light from that explosion also being emitted from it. So you have gravitational waves and light. And so because of that, uh, everything was accelerated for this one because LIGO uh, recorded the event. Uh, I was actually, that was, uh, the, I was on shift for that one as well. So that's another exciting uh, uh, time for me. But um, when that detection was recorded, you know, a couple of minutes after um, the signal passed through the earth, uh, I got to listen in to the scientists around the, the planet as they were analyzing the data. And they said, and they realized this, these are neutron stars crashing. And so everybody was excited, talking fast, because we had to generate an alert and send it to the astronomers all over the, the planet so that they'll know where to look in the sky for these, this, this event. And so, yeah, so that was about five in the morning, that, that August, that late summer morning uh, when I was on shift. And it wasn't until the sun set later that day, eight hours later, eight or 10 hours later, that's when light was observed from this event uh, in Chile from an observatory there. And then, then days and uh, uh, weeks later, other observatory, observatories observed it as well. And so because of that, we had all of these other astronomers, not, uh, not LIGO astronomers, but other astronomers around the world who also had this huge scoop that they wanted to share. Uh, so because of that, everything was accelerated. And so we, instead of uh, five months, we had generally about a month or a few weeks to, to, to rush everything because uh, these other astronomers wanted to share what they just observed too with LIGO. And so for the press release on this one, basically the draft of it was completed about a day or two days before we announced. And so I was there again and I was like, I, I want to get this to my mom, but she needs time to do it. But uh, when I got the draft, I immediately emailed it to my mom and then, uh, then she worked on it. But for this one, she didn't have two weeks. She had basically uh, less than 24 hours. So she had to basically do a, an overnighter. For, for this event. And, and she did, and she, she had it, she had a draft, she worked all night and um, emailed it back to me and we had it. I was able to upload it right as we were announcing the, the on that, that day, which is I think in October of 2017. And so, yeah, I'm totally proud of what she did and uh, how fa I was, I'm, I'm amazed by what she did on that, that for that detection. <laughs> so, um, you seem uh, quite keen on making sure that that the Blackfoot translation is is up with all of the other languages. You know, at the same time, it's not lagging yeah. behind. Yeah, 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 yeah. For all of them, uh, uh, we had our deadline, and I tried. I didn't. 
I wasn't very, I, I didn't prod her a lot, but I kept, I did text my mom a lot just saying, how's it going? Uh, are you going to be ready? And it wasn't, it wasn't an easy thing. My mom would work on it on a pen and with, with a pen and paper. And then I think, how would she do it? Then she couldn't email it to me directly. So her husband had to go drive down the hill to, to where he worked and then he would email it to me. So it wasn't something totally fast. I mean, my mom was working with the pen and paper. Uh, so yeah, so I, I did bug her a little bit, but for the most part, she was able to, to just shine and just get it done on, on her own and ahead of schedule. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate your time. I had a delightful time. Awesome. Yeah, good. Yeah, cool to chat with you. All right. You can learn more about Corey Gray and find links to information about LIGO and the translation into Blackfoot at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back next week with more Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 